have that as we jump into uh, really our study of First John. We last week, if you remember, laid the foundation, the groundwork for this new study. Uh, we talked about some of the the main reasons that John is writing. Uh, this letter in particular kind of culminating in that last chapter, chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I write these things uh, to you who believe so that you may know that you are in the truth, um, that you may basically be assured of your salvation. And so a lot of that is going to be impacted uh, by the rest of the letter. Uh, John is writing to a people who are uh, Christians but are obviously being... uh, Tempted and swayed by all kinds of different things, and especially false teaching. He's seeing people who are, uh, they're seeing people who are walking away from the faith, being led astray. And so naturally, as Christians, you start wondering, like, what is true? What do I, what is it that I need to, to know? What am I holding on to as the basis for uh, my assurance? And so John really is going to try to help us uh, wrestle with some of those things throughout this letter. But today is kind of his introduction to the letter in verses 1 through 4. And so very brief passage that we're going to seek to unpack together this morning. So uh, if you would go ahead and stand, we're going to read it together. <clears throat> First John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. John writes this, he says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. Let's begin uh, by asking God to bless our time of study together this morning. So would you do that with me? Father, now we do pray for uh, open hearts and open minds. Uh, Lord, the, the section before us this morning um, really has the power and the ability to reorient our thinking and to reorient our lives. And so I pray that we would not just treat this like any other day, um, that we just go through the routines of showing up to church, we make our appearance known, and then leave unchanged. But I pray that as our students look into the, the mirror of your word, uh, they would be brought to conviction where necessary, that they would be encouraged where necessary, and that you would ultimately point them to the joy and satisfaction that they can only have in Christ Jesus. Uh, So would you be pleased to do that this morning as we study together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was your age in high school, uh, a movie came out. It was really popular and has kind of remained popular even to this day. Uh, But a movie by the title of The Pursuit of Happiness. Anybody ever heard of this movie? Ever seen this movie before? 
Have you ever seen the pursuit of happiness? We've seen, oh wow, so like none of you have. Stars Will Smith, right? So uh, some of you can relate to, I guess, to some degree. Uh, I'm trying to think, this movie came out in 2006. How many of you were even born in 2006, other than leaders? A couple of you, okay. Is that the year you were born? I was doing the math on it today, and I was like, wow, that makes me feel incredibly old to think that that was the year you were born. Crazy. Because uh, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. But yes, Pursuit of Happiness. So the story uh, retells the accounts, as it's a retelling of a true story, of a man by the name of Christopher Gardner. Christopher Gardner uh, lived in San Francisco uh, a couple decades ago, and he is a... Uh, a struggling dad with a, a son whose uh, wife kind of leaves him in the midst of their financial and relational struggles. And the whole plot of the movie is uh, him seeking to pursue a better life for him and his son. He's not happy about the way his life has turned out. It hasn't gone according to his plans. He and his wife had big plans to, to make it big, to really... Uh, do well in the, the job and the industry he was in, and all those things had really gone poorly. And the whole basis for the rest of the movie is him trying to pursue a, a, a higher uh, certification, education, so that he can get a higher job and provide a better life for him and his son. Between his grit, his work ethic, and his love for his son, he is determined to change their life circumstances. And he does so. It makes for good Hollywood cinema because it's an underdog story. He, he does indeed uh, receive an internship to a, a company that uh, very few people get. He was able to become a stockbroker, uh, a highly competitive job that a lot of people were gunning for, and he made it. And his life was changed forever by his circumstances. It was an American success story that we all love to hear about and to cheer and champion. We definitely live in an age that is ruled by the idea of the pursuits of happiness. Uh, You hear that all the time as it relates to your job, being a job that will make you happy, uh, get a good education so that you can get a good job, get a good job so you can provide for your family, provide for your family so that you can X, Y, Z, keep going on and on and on. And yet sometimes we don't ask ourselves to what end. Although a lot of times society will tell us, well, that's what you have to do in order to be happy. I think this is especially a struggle for teenagers. You can think about your own life, your own relationships, your friendships, your your interactions in school and sports and uh, extracurriculars of all sorts. You're, You're kind of in a constant struggle to do the things that make you feel happy. There's never been an age in our uh, culture in our world, at least from measured uh, statistical standpoints, in which teenagers have been more unhappy. If you look at the last decade and a half, uh, statistics of teenage depression, anxiety, you name it, has skyrocketed. It's safe to say that you and your generation, if we were to put it in 
our own terminology, are perhaps the most unhappy generation to ever exist. In fact, we live in an age, too, where within that, in that pursuit of trying to be happy, we decide to pursue things that we know, maybe deep down, or have been told by others, are not good, or not right, or not godly, we tend to pursue them because we know that for us, they will bring some level of happiness. And after all, uh, we live in a world now where the question becomes so common, doesn't God want me to be happy? And we really put the blame on God for that. Surely God's greatest desire for me in life is that I would be happy. But I think the Bible understands that Happiness is not a wrong thing, but happiness actually only comes through holiness. When life is lived according to God's standards, God is not anti-happy. It's not as if God doesn't want you to be happy, but he also understands that happiness comes through your obedience and your submission to him. But even more importantly, the Bible speaks to the importance of something other than happiness. This Bible, the Bible speaks to something that's so much better and greater than just the emotion of happiness. It speaks to joy. It speaks to joy. <clears throat> now, to be clear, there is happy language that is used throughout the Bible. Uh, if you were to look at the Psalms, if you look at the Beatitudes, you would see this language that's used time and time again of Blessed is this person. Uh, that word in the, the Bible languages is a word that uh, entails or includes the emotion of, of happiness. And so God, again, believes and understands there are avenues where happiness is truly brought to the Christian life. God is a God of emotions, and he created, created us emotional beings. Not that we would be ruled by our emotions, but that our emotions would be reflective of the state of our soul. But as we look at the full scope of the Bible, we see the need for something much better than just an emotion. We see the need for joy. And to be clear again, joy can, I want you to hear me closely this morning, joy can and often does include the emotion of happiness. But joy is also something we can have when times are not so happy. After all, James very clearly writes in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. I don't know about you, but whenever things are not going so well in life, I don't really feel very happy. Uh, you guys may feel very happy when school is canceled for two days, um, I, as a parent, have not quite the happy emotions because uh, it throws all kinds of things into the loop for my life. Uh, while I love my children very much, there are challenges that come from still being on work schedule while also trying to be on child management schedule. And then you add into that a sick child and all life goes to kaboots, right? I mean, that's just... But James tells us here that when trials and hardships come, and please don't 
hear me saying that my trials of having to stay home with my kids and having a sick child are the greatest trials in life. They're totally not. But when real hardships come, when real relational challenges come, when death and sickness and pain and loss are a part of your life, happiness is hard to find. But joy is something that transcends happiness. Joy is something that you can find regardless of your circumstances. Because joy is a state of being that can remain steady even when life is not. And I think that's what John wants you to know this morning. When you look at 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 4, I think we have to understand our passage by beginning at the end. We're going to understand this opening, this introduction that John gives us to this letter, we have to start with the end in mind. And that means going to verse 4, where John says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is one of those four purpose statements that we saw last week when we looked at the the target or the reasons why John is writing this letter. He is clearly expressing in this verse, that his goal and his desire in writing these things is that our collective joy may be complete. In other words, it is meant to fill up what may be lacking in our joy. Not to mention, you can only have complete joy if your joy is grounded in the right place. But how is that possible? Can we truly know complete, true, lasting joy? John believes so. And he wants to help us see that in our opening three verses this morning. Because I think the point for us today as we look at 1 John, first four verses, is this. That we can know complete joy when we rightly relate to Jesus and to his people. Plain and simple. We can know complete joy when we rightly relate to Jesus and to his people. This big idea for us points us to two essential components needed for true and lasting joy. So that's what we're going to look at this morning is these two essential uh, components that are needed for us to have complete true and lasting joy. If we want to know complete joy, we must embrace the following two realities. The first one is this, is that we must embrace the truth about Jesus. We must embrace the truth about Jesus. Verses 1 and 2, as I read those there, you probably noticed that John is giving you uh, the perspective of a living witness, a living testimony He writes as a verified eyewitness to the truth about Jesus. And when I say eyewitness, I don't mean like eyewitness, you know, to the car accident. You're like three, four vehicles back and you saw a couple of the details. You're not so sure, but you can try to help the police maybe give a little bit more depth to it. But that's that's the eyewitness. No, John is very different. John was an eyewitness who was up close and personal with the figure at the center of it all. 
uh, and the person at the center of it all kind of veiled here in unique language in these opening two verses is none other than Jesus himself. Uh, remember what we talked about last week. John was in Jesus's inner circle. In fact, John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, perhaps more than any other human, had the front row seat to this man and his work known as Jesus. And so his testimony that he gives here is true. It is sure. It is reliable. So what truth does he want you to embrace about Jesus in these two verses? There's two things I think he wants you to understand here about Jesus, the truth about Jesus. And these aren't going to be necessarily revolutionary to you. You've probably heard them before, but we need to talk about them because they're foundational to everything else. It's the truth that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. Jesus is not like God. Jesus is not a type of God. Jesus himself is God. Notice how he refers to Jesus here in this kind of uh, abstract language. He, but he, he refers to Jesus as the word of life. He even goes on to later refer to him as the eternal life. Reminds us of Jesus himself speaking to the fact that he is the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way and the truth and the life. It even reminds us of another opening. And not just any opening. It reminds us of the opening of John's gospel, doesn't it? Anybody know how John's gospel begins? What are the opening words of John's gospel? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Right? So he's even drawing in language from uh, the gospel that he's already utilized. And we even talked about this at the beginning of the school year in our Bible study on the identity of Jesus. Using this language speaks to the eternality of Jesus. He had no beginning. Usually when we speak about eternity, most of us uh, think forward-facing. We think futuristic. We think, what is eternity going to be like going forward? But John wants you to think about eternity looking backwards. That Jesus had no beginning. He had no start. He always was because he himself is God. Jesus was there in the beginning in Genesis 1. According to Colossians 1, Jesus, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks uh, in our Wednesday study, was there actively with God creating the world. Uh, when John uses this language even, when he refers to Jesus as the Word, we understand, <laughs> it's weird to talk about words, but words do what? Words communicate. Words make things that are abstract tangible. We also say words show, words reveal, or according to John's language here, words manifest. And I use that language because I think that's helpful for us as we think about 
Jesus as the word of life. Because if John is saying that Jesus is the word, which we don't talk about, we don't use that type of language, but when he says that Jesus is the word, and he goes on to describe that, what he's basically doing is saying Jesus communicates God to us. Jesus shows us God. In fact, Jesus himself says that throughout his ministry. No one has ever seen the Father, but when you look at me, you get the closest glimpse you can to the Father. Because I reveal, I show, I communicate God to you. Again, this is important though because he doesn't just communicate God. After all, uh, sorry, I skipped ahead of here a little bit. John wants to make his point very clear that the grounds for our joy is found in Jesus, who is himself God, but not just God. After all, God is spirit. You can't see God. And so how does he do this? How does Jesus show us God? He does so by taking on flesh and becoming a man, which is his second point here, is that Jesus is a man. Truth about Jesus is that he is both God and he is man. Notice how detailed John's testimony is of Jesus. You probably picked up on this when I read it, but he says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands. That's, that's like sensory language here. Uh, it doesn't say anything about smell or taste, and it's probably a good thing that it doesn't. I don't know that we want to hear about that, although I'm sure they smelled Jesus just like anybody else did. Um, but the idea is that's, that's tangible. That's something you can hold on to. You know, we live in a world today of science that says things have to be touched, they have to be seen, they have to be observed, they have to be measured. Well, guess what? John's saying that's the reality for him. We have seen, we have heard, we have touched with our own hands. This very one. Jesus is not uh, some projection of an image. No, he is God himself. He is man. We saw, we heard, we touched, we ate with him, we walked with him, we slept by him. We, uh, you, you name it, we did these very things side by side with him. This is the physical reality of Jesus. He took on the very same flesh that you and I dwell in, but in a way that I and you can never be able to fully comprehend. After all, what does it mean that something can be 100% both things? Right? The truth about Jesus is not when we say that he is the perfect God-man, that he was like 50% God and 50% man. Nor is it that he was uh, just a full-grown man, but just uh, had this projection of, of God persona, right? This divine uh, aura and good nature about him. Nor was he just God and gave the impression of being a man, if you want to know more about this, we'll answer, I'm sure, every question you have on Wednesday night when we look at Philippians chapter 2 in our Bible study together. That's why you should do it. But no, he's fully God and fully man. And you've heard that before, I'm sure, but have you ever 
understood why that's important to understand other than the fact that it's true according to the Bible, which is good enough reason to believe it. But have you ever thought about what's at stake if that's not true? If Jesus is not fully God and fully man, does that change anything? If you were to study the Bible, the answer should be absolutely, that changes everything. This balance is so important because there's a false understanding of who Jesus is leads to a false understanding of what Jesus accomplished. We put some of these ideas together in the Bible. We understand that uh, sin deserves payment. And what does the Bible say is necessary for payment to be made? Without the what, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood. Without sacrifice, without payment, human sacrifice, there cannot be forgiveness of sin. That's why Jesus and his humanity is certainly so important, but here's the problem. Can anybody, according to their life, right, this blood is representative of life, the taking of life is necessary for the payment of sin. That's why God says the wages of sin is death. So who in this room is capable of avoiding that death? Who here is able to be perfect? Who here is able to say there is no spot or blemish in their life? The answer is none of you. None of us are. All of us, even just by nature of being born into this world, inherit a sinful nature. It doesn't take long for that to be shown and to manifest itself. But... If Jesus truly is fully God, then he is able to uphold the righteous standards of God that have been put in place. And if he is fully man, he is able to insert himself and to substitute himself as that perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb to sacrifice himself for the good of humanity. If, if Jesus is not truly one of those two things, that whole argumentation falls apart. And that's dangerous, right? Because all of a sudden, the one that we say is able to pay for our sins is not or has not actually done that. And so this is critical. And John understands that. And John understands that for his audience, the people that he is writing to here. He understands what is at stake. And that's why he wants them to understand this testimony about Jesus, but also understand that joy can only come from embracing the truth about who Jesus is. That's why throughout this letter, he's going to time and time come back to the understanding that if you are truly in the faith, you have a right understanding of who Jesus is. Because if you don't, if you lack that proper understanding, if you, like many in that society and many of those false teachers, have a wrong understanding of Jesus and are being led astray by that, you do not have the assurance you need that you are walking in the truth. And all of this impacts our second point here. Because we're told here that if we're going to have complete joy, we must embrace the truth about Jesus. But secondly, this morning, we also must embrace the fellowship of believers. Verse 3, we must embrace the fellowship 
of believers. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. There's two aspects to this fellowship that we need to think about here this morning. The first of which is this, our common salvation. Our common salvation. Uh, oh, did I go in the right order? Ha ha ha, apparently I got out of order. Now you know my second point. Ha. Our common salvation, that will start there. Verse 3, we proclaim these things so that you may have, what do you say, fellowship with us. A fellowship that is, uh, uh, fellowship is that rich word that speaks to sharing something in common. Uh, you're familiar with this, right? How many of you are a part of uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, or it's now something else, right? Fellowship of, what? What? Fellowship of Christian Administrators. All right, that's okay. All right, but you understand fellowship, right? So you use that language there, fellowship. It describes a, a community of people who uh, share a commonality with each other. Uh, those of you who don't want to speak to that language, uh, we'll go to one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written, right? The Fellowship of the Ring. How many Lord of the Rings fans we got in here? Okay, yeah. So you understand that, right? The title of that book is no mistake when it talks about the Fellowship of the Ring. It speaks of a, a group of people who have been brought together for a common purpose, a common objective, which is to destroy this ring of power. And so we understand that language. It's loaded. It's rich. But it is a very biblical word for Christians. That shared relationship is our common salvation. If Jesus has saved you and you have put your faith in that saving work, then you have a new family. You have a new community, a fellowship of brothers and sisters who are with you, who have a, a shared experience with you. That's why John is going to lean into this concept hard throughout his letter. He makes it very clear a lack of love for this group of people shows a disconnect from the common salvation that you supposedly share together, right? If you understand that God has saved you, that you have been brought into this new relationship with him, then you understand those who share this with you, like, what do you all bring? Uh, you guys are on equal playing field. None of you are more deserving than the rest. You are each partakers in and participants in this common salvation that you get to rejoice in and you get to partake together in. This is why I often talk about the importance of the church. God has not saved you to be this lone ranger who does life on your own. God has saved you into community. God has saved you into family. That's why you need, and I use that word very intentionally, you need other people. God did not design you to just be operating uh, in your own personal Bible study and you're good. God designed you to be in a community with brothers and sisters in Christ. Joy is connected to this redeemed community that God has given to you, which the basis for it is, pretend I just clicked this, our common Savior, right? Our common Savior, he says there in verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with who? 
the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our common salvation, our fellowship is understood through our relationship, our right relationship with God. When Jesus saves us, he brings us back into a right relationship with God. And if you don't know what I mean by that, if you don't understand that, and you need to better picture that, you just need to turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is perhaps the clearest place that the Bible expresses this reality. Uh, because here, Paul writes to the church of Rome in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So through Jesus, we now have peace with God. And some of you may be sitting here this morning and thinking to yourself, I didn't know that I wasn't at peace with God. I mean, I, I knew that maybe I didn't know God the way I should have. I maybe didn't trust God the way I should have, but I would have never thought that I lacked peace with him. But the Bible speaks differently of that. The Bible never speaks of some neutral category as if you either uh, you know, hate Jesus, love Jesus, or you're just somewhere in the middle and you're just not really sure. Look at the way Paul describes it later on in verse uh, chapter 5 here. Verse 9, Since therefore we have been justified by his, Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Do you hear that language this morning? And maybe for those of you this morning who haven't put your trust in Jesus, do you hear what that language is saying? You are not at peace with God. In fact, the Bible says you are considered to be an enemy of God. You, you all watch enough superhero movies, enough war movies to know that there are two sides in a conflict. And the Bible speaks very clearly that you are not on the winning side. The Bible speaks very clearly that you are not on the good guy side either. You are an enemy by nature against God. That is what makes your salvation and your redemption and what Jesus did to accomplish your salvation so significant. It's hard to have joy when you know that you are at odds with God. You have every reason to lack peace if you have continued to spurn God by refusing the gracious and loving offer of peace that he has given to you, the peace, uh, the, the terms of surrender through Jesus Christ. But for those of you who have done that, and you have received Jesus Christ by faith, you have been given everything you need for true and lasting joy. After all, you have been brought out of darkness, out of enemy lines, to now be aligned with the one who is the champion of all. That no matter what happens to you now in this life, though pain may be a part of your life, though suffering, though broken relationships may be a part of your life, 
you possess the greatest thing. The thing that no one can take away from you. The eternal life that has been given to you by the eternal life. How about you, but that provides a pretty firm and steady foundation when life is not going well. That provides a basis for things when trouble and trial come, you can hold on to. And that is exactly what joy is. Joy is a, a satisfaction and a peace that you can have with God even when times are hard. Even when you not might be, may not be overflowing with happiness about what's happening to you, you can rest contented, satisfied, knowing that your place with God is secure and that he has your ultimate best interests in mind. You are in right relationship with the God-man who saved you and gives you all that you need for this life. And you are now in a right relationship with a community of believers who can help you grow along the way. How about you, but there seems to be no greater joy than knowing those two realities, than embracing those two realities about the truth of Jesus and about the fellowship that we share amongst other believers. And so John, right out of the gate here, is making it very clear. If you want to know joy, if you want to have even assurance, then look to the right place. Look to the right place. And this is going to be the entryway, the gateway by which John begins to establish the rest of what he's going to talk about here throughout this letter. So I trust that this has been an encouragement. I would encourage you in advance of next week, start reading through the end of chapter 1, even into the first few verses of chapter 2. Uh, probably, in my opinion, the sweetest uh, section in the entire uh, letter. And excited to have uh, Chris be with you next week to unpack that more. So let's pray as we wrap up our time this morning. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity uh, to better process what this true joy is, this complete joy is that we can have in Christ Jesus. I pray for our students um, that this would not just be, again, another Sunday academic, just uh, better accumulating knowledge, uh, but that, Lord, the truth that John is presenting to us would impact us on a soul level that for those who are here this morning who have continued to spurn Jesus, who hold him at arm's length, I pray that they would see the truth of where they stand before a holy, righteous God and that you would bring them to conviction of sin and that you would help them to wave that white flag of surrender as an enemy of Christ and ultimately cast themselves upon the mercy and the peace that is offered to them in Jesus. And for those who are walking in that this morning but are still maybe struggling to uh, be satisfied, uh, to who maybe would say they are lacking some of that joy, I pray that they would cast themselves upon the work of Jesus, that they would uh, help surround themselves with the fellowship of believers that are even here at this church to strengthen and uphold them and to help them better remember that in Christ Jesus, they are more than conquerors, that you have not spared the most important thing from them. And so therefore, Lord, they have the greatest of assurance for all other things in this life. Though trial may come, we know that those things are given not to destroy our faith, but even according to James, to strengthen and grow us in maturity. 
So would you do that in the lives of those who are trusting in you today? And we look forward to seeing what fruit you will bear from this study, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.